imagination is a mysterious force and feeling your way into other lives is very exciting. And you've said that it's an unconscious thing. The subconscious does an awful lot of the work. If you come up against a problem in what you're writing, as a young man, I would bang my head against it and try and force my way through. Now I just walk away. And when it's fixed, and you don't know it's fixed because you haven't given it any thought, you find yourself back at your desk and it is fixed. It's an amazing process. Here I am sat with author, journalist, and literary editor for The Spectator, Sam Leith. Sam, thank you for inviting me over to your home. Pure laziness on my part. <laughs> I want to start by asking you how and when you discovered Martin Amos. I imagine that the news of his death came as a shock to you as it did to everybody, but that for you, there were memories there. There were handshakes and words exchanged. Yeah, well, the news of his death didn't come as a complete surprise to me because I'd Heard from one of my colleagues, um, our chief critic, Philip Henscher, he'd said, you know, Martin's not well. And I don't know who he'd heard it from, but he, he, he sort of, a couple of weeks before it happened, he rung me up and said, which I was really touched by, he said, look, he's on the way out and I want to get something locked and loaded to write because he said, I think that the obituaries aren't all going to be kind to him. And I think he's great and I, I want to sort of essentially set out you know, write a big piece. He said, I'm rereading all his work. I want to write a piece making the case for Amos as a novelist and for his greatness. And I thought that was was a generous response. Um, and obviously I said, yes, please. <laughs> and did you agree with him? I did. Yeah, I did. You know, I wrote a piece some years ago, I think, when The Zone of Interest was coming out. It was an attempt to kind of look over Amos's career. Uh, partly, it was, it was kind of a spoiler. The Guardian commissioned it because I think the Sunday Times had got the exclusive interview and the serialisation of The Zone of Interest and they they wanted a big piece and obviously they couldn't do anything on the new book. Um, so that was the thing. And I found myself writing that piece that realizing even then, when you're writing about Amos, you found yourself reaching for the title in defense of Martin Amos. You know, he he had become, for various complicated reasons, some of them his own fault, many of them not, a sort of major media whipping boy. Not all of those were literary attacks. In fact, most of them were to do with the sort of gossip, with the idea of him. There is a sense that for a lot of the last, well, the last couple of decades of his life, at least, his reputation was sort of on the back foot. And I, you know, even if you say or allow that some of his later work didn't have the kind of immediacy and zeitgeistiness of the of the 90s stuff, he nevertheless, I think, was a, you know, he, he was somebody to contend with right up to the end of his life. You might expect that any author, no matter how great, would perhaps lose some of their perspicacity and being able to sort of lance the moment. But his status as a media whipping boy was also to do, do you think, with the wave of cultural revisionism in the 2010s and how social media has started to sort of pick things apart? I think a little bit. I mean, I think a couple of things were going on. One of them is that Amos, for better or for worse, and I think there's kind of conversation to be had about that, was really interested in engaging with his times, in making big statements about the world, sometimes in journalism, often in his fiction. You know, he was really up for big subjects, for important subjects. And he wanted to report on the world, even though in some ways his talent was, you know, most brilliantly for making it up for a kind of grotesque 
exaggerated, cartoony, Dickensian comic you know, view of the world. You're hinting already at the book we're going to be discussing. Well, exactly. All of those we're going, words. We're going yeah, those, yes. All of those are turned up to 11 in the book we're going to discuss, um, which is kind of inevitable. As you become older, as you become more, as he was, you know, secure and, you know, wealthy and sort of isolated from his subjects in some ways, that his ability to report from the world was going off a bit. I mean, my, you know, the classic instance, I think, would be, you know, in London Fields, which was London lowlife, you knew, and it came through in the work, that however grotesquely exaggerated, he'd kind of been to those horrible Portobello pubs. You know, he'd gone on the so-called slumming expeditions with Christopher Hitchens. He was, you know, he was hanging out in fetid, nasty pubs that served nasty pies in the Portobello Road in the early 80s and late 70s and early 90s. And by the time he came to write another kind of excursus into York culture, Lionel Asbo, which was one of his less successful later novels, um, this, this still detail. a great novel, though, isn't it? Well, it's funny in bits, but I don't think it it doesn't feel as closely glued to reality, you know, or, or at least its caricatures are less. I mean, the detail that that struck me, which will seem hugely trivial, and it is hugely trivial, is Lionel and his uncle are always coming back from, you know, they, they always eat at KFC, and they they have a sort of charming KFC, KFC. Um, and he always describes how they're taking their chickens out of the bargain bucket and so forth. And he describes them ripping open the little sachets of mustard and ketchup to slather them with mustard and ketchup. And as someone who, being in my 20s and quite drunk in the 1990s and early noughties, I went to KFC a lot. And I know that they don't have sachets of mustard and ketchup in KFC. And I was like, that's the detail of someone who's not reporting. Another book for another episode. Another Thanks book for, for indulging episode, that. Yes. Sorry, you were talking about him going to these pubs. I think Christopher Hitchens and he had this mutual admiration for each other's craft. And, and while Christopher Hitchens sort of always wished that he had more literary flair, it sounds to me from what you're saying that Martin Amos always secretly wanted to be much more on the ground looking in and being a reporter of some kind. And when he said, as he said often, all literature is political, you can't get away from it. Do you think what he was saying was true or is true? Or do you think that it was a universalized expression of an impulse he had? I think I think he was never very interested for most of his life in writing, if you like, you know, <laughs> that cliche of literary fiction, um, which of whom actual real concrete examples are very few, but you know, the hamster's adultery novel. He wasn't really interested in writing, you know, little character studies that weren't connected to the wider world. He he wanted to get the text of these vast subjects in. Not all of them were political. I mean, you know, when you think of the things he wanted to take on, you know, Stalin's terror, the Holocaust, which obviously are very political, but he was also interested in the heat death of the universe um, quite early on in his work in, in, you know, entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, interested in nuclear holocaust, interested in Islamist terror. You know, there were these big, vibey subjects, some of which were political, some of which were sort of existential. And those were the things he wanted to batten onto. So his work, for most of the sort of, if you like, the, <laughs> the imperial phase of his career, was preoccupied with setting his characters in a much bigger world. And that world was more often than not, in some sense, political. I mean, you know, when he was writing about, say, in The Pregnant Widow, he's writing about the sexual revolution. Though, again, he gets a bit of Islamism in there towards the end as well. You know, he was interested in big social movements, in big existential shifts. 
And meeting him for the first time, can you recall when that was and, and how it felt? Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether we're allowed to swear on your podcast, but I was fucking terrified. You can um, absolutely swear. I think, I'm trying to remember what um, exactly where I would have been. I think I would have been the literary editor of the Daily Telegraph at the time. And I was, I guess, in my early 30s. And I got an invitation to chair Amos at the Royal Festival Hall. Why terrified, though? Terrified because he was still, to me, a kind of, let's say quite godlike, but he was a titanic figure. You know, I had grown up since a teenager, you know, my idea of a famous writer, as everybody of my generation's idea of a famous writer, was Martin Amis. Now, he was not only, you know, super, you know, celebrated and iconic and all those meaningless qualifiers he'd use, he was also famous for being a bit fighty. You know, we knew that with quite good reason he didn't like journalists. He was sort of sardonic. He was often in his public pronouncements quite aggressive. And as I say, he, he'd been a, a sort of figure who pretty much filled the horizon for me as a, as a young man of my generation and interests. And so I had this sort of, and also I should say, I don't think at this stage, I, I don't know why I'm making this up, but I don't think at this stage I'd really chaired any writers in public at all, ever. You know, I'd done, I'd done a lot of book reviewing, I'd, I'd done interviews, I don't, but I, I don't think I'd sat on stage. I certainly hadn't sat on the main stage at the Royal Festival Hall, and I'd never chaired Martin Amis or anybody else in public. And so I had this kind of thing of like, I'll go there, he will squash me like a bug in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, and it's going to be the most traumatic and terrifying experience of my life. But I basically dared myself to do it, because I reasoned, well, I know Amis's work intimately, you know, I've read practically everything he's written, and I admire him hugely, so I, I should be at least qualified. And I also thought, well, look, you know, it's kind of the job of a literary editor to chair writers on stage and do public events with writers. So if I get through this and it's not a complete and utter disaster, I'm probably not going to be frightened of doing it ever again. It was a kind of Maginot line reasoning that said, you know, you go through the hardest thing first and Absolutely. then everything else is jammed. An absolute baptism of fire. Well, that was it. So I kind of basically made myself say yes. And everyone was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, shit, 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 shit. And we came into the green room at the festival hall, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever, before we were due on stage and made some sort of nervous chit chat. And I, I remember trying to kind of say something sort of relatively sort of bland and, and complimentary to him about saying, oh, it was a nice, nice profile of you in The Observer at the weekend. Because Rachel Cook had written a, a friendly profile of The Observer. He went, yeah. Yeah, Rachel Cook. Uh, and it turned out that she'd said something about having a slightly scraggy neck or, or thinning hair, or she'd made some reference to how he looked at his age. He went, yeah, I'm going to go around to her house with my notebook, my notebook, when she's 55 or 60. I was like, oh, well, this is going well, isn't it? Um, the fight was coming out. Yeah, no, it was that, that was the thing he'd lit on, because it was actually, in my memory, a very complimentary interview. But, and this, you know, physical vanity is part of, of him as part of what he writes about in his characters. So obviously that had bugged him and I got off slightly on the wrong foot. And then just as we were about to go on stage, he says, I think probably because he could sort of see me looking green around the gills. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't exactly look like a kind of grandee of the literary world. Um, and he said, oh, tell me, Sam, have you, have you done this sort of thing very often before? I'll be honest, Mr. Abel, it's my first time. And he just went, sort of hum noise. And on we went on stage. And and I've never forgotten this and felt I eternally owe him one. He then kind of, obviously having 
thought, well, it would be perfectly possible to smear me on the carpet, but, but why? His event, audience is there to see him, and he made it work. And I asked him, you know, my, my sort of jejune little questions, and he answered in these great faultless rolling paragraphs. And he kind of took command of the whole event, and he made it work, and he was absolutely wonderful. I, that seemed to me to be an act of great generosity, and the generosity of Amos in person, other people, including Ed Docks, who wrote a lovely piece about him um, after his death, have pointed to that. And I think that's something that, that against this kind of public image of this sort of crab, nasty, aggressive, vain, politically incorrect sort of figure that has often come out. Um, I think that personal generosity of him is something that, that yeah, it's nothing to do with his literary reputation, but it, it's something that I, I would would like to bring out. I mean, that's what struck me when Martin Amis passed, was that there were so many people who, who came out uh, very much, as you said, in defense of Martin Amis. And it sounds like perhaps the novelist Philip Hensch's apprehension at the amount of backlash turned out not to be quite so true in the end. Um, yes, I think that's absolutely right. I, I was struck and delighted by the generosity of of the, the appraisals that came in. I think you know there are arguments we can have about his worldview, his ideological statements, arguments we'd have about the kind of peculiarly lopsided nature of his talent. I mean, I think there is and always has been an issue with Amos and women. Um, in fact, funny enough, on I, I did ask him about the people who said, well, you know, these characters, you've, your, your female characters, people often complain that they're kind of female fantasy figures. You know, they're all absolutely ridiculously voluptuous and, and sort of snarled, actually, slightly on that. And he said, well, what are these critics saying that they're fantasy figures? Are they saying that, saying that writers can't pull? These women are just beautiful. They just happen to be beautiful. Well, the same writers can't pull. The same book reviewers can't pull. Which again, is a slightly kind of retrograde way of expressing it. I think. I think with Amos and women is he was not really writing about women. I mean, he says somewhere about Angus Wilson. You know, it's merely philistine to arraign a writer for what his muse does or doesn't lead him to. And I think Amos was a writer, inescapably. Really, he wrote about men and women in his books are sort of over there. You know, they're they're creatures who are sometimes resented, sometimes feared, sometimes fantasized about. They, you know, in the interiority, he's most interested in capturing the male interiority. And it's a particular sort of mostly heterosexual male interiority of a certain vintage. But yeah, I mean that's that's one of the the ways in which I think his talent's lopsided, because there are lots of lots of writers who are capable of, you know, being distinctly hermaphroditic when you think of George George Eliot or Flaubert or any of them, you know, they're all very capable of writing both sexes. At some point, I'm sure somebody is going to choose Night Train, which has a female protagonist. Female protagonist called Mike, <laughs> whose opening words are, I am a police. The book you chose is Dead Babies, published in 1975, Amos's second novel after his first novel, the celebrated Rachel Papers. It was published in paperback as Dark Secrets and supposedly a novel where Amos attempts to parody the country house mysteries of Agatha Christie. It was turned into a film, 2000, starring Paul Bettany and Olivia Williams, among others, panned, but I guess you could say that this is Amos's big dissection of his generation's obsession with sex, drugs, self-image, health, etc. And it was the first of his novels that you, you ever read. If I'm remembering rightly, I think I was a teenager when I read it, so I was very interested to kind of revisit it, among other things, because I remembered it being, as it often is, sort of howlingly funny. I mean, I, I'd forgotten quite how really horrible it is. Um, I think maybe the, the title should have should have forewarned me. 
But I think it's interesting because it's sort of Amos in the Imago stage. You know, the Amos who was to come later was to write about big subjects. I mean, as you say, there is a sort of generational big subject here. But it's a it's a book that really is sort of almost, I think it's almost the last book he wrote in which simply trying to be funny was number one. I think it's it contains precursors. I mean, it's his first Keith, for example. And, you know, we'll go on to Keith. Many in a of his characters called Keith. Yeah, yeah he has that's a right. few Keiths. And those Keiths, you know, the sort of thread runs through them as sort of avatars of, of less than six foot two, um, not completely successful with women, men who are, you know, the, the sort of idea we have that or seems to be popular that Amos is this kind of, you know, very, I know, boastful, peacocking sort of writer. That actually Amos is, is a great anatomist of his own neuroses, and you know, being short and worrying about sex is are both among the neuroses that he anatomizes most thoroughly throughout yes. his career. Well, precisely this conversation about Amos and men, he often argued that yes, he does write a lot about men, but those men are often figures of pity. I think you could. That's the way that you see the female fantasy figures. The female fantasy figures in his, in his novels are, are exactly that. They're fantasy figures in the sort of pitiful minds of these male characters. And it's um, fascinating, isn't it, that the nominal determinism for Martin Amis of, of, of certain people, he was able to manifest them in all sorts of different ways, but the Keithness carries on, doesn't it? I was at a dinner for Don DeLillo some years ago, which was a very exciting event, um, at which Amos was there. And I remember him having a big conversation with, I think, it's great name dropping with Salman Rushdie, where they were going on and on about Tim. And Amos was saying, I have there ever been a Tim who has done anything at all in the world? You know, which I think someone said, well, oh, it's Tim Berners-Lee. But there was, a, you know, he was really interested in the flavour of the name Tim and the idea that Tims were essentially all useless. And I think Keith's in Amos's world are all basically sort of short and kind of grubby. Um, Keith Whitehead is the name of the character exactly. in Dead Babies. Well, what I want to say about Dead Babies is it's a novel in which Almost none of the characters have any redeeming features whatsoever. It's Amos's kind of comic grotesquery. You know, at this stage in his career, simply he's turned all the dials up to eleven, and what you can see happening, he has this this thing, which I think is a feature that goes all the way through his his writing, where I just never quite call it postmodernism, but the author is a presence. You sense that the characters. And he sometimes says as much. He says, you know, I'd, I'd like to be nicer to this character. But I'm afraid the design of this book requires the most horrible stuff. So all you can do is pity them. Um, and, and it's one of, one of the rejoinders I sometimes would offer to people who say, well, his female characters don't have agency. They don't they don't operate independently. Like, you know, they're, they're sort of just pushed around. They're pawns, they're dolls. I think is that's true of almost all of Martin Amos's characters. There's always an author or a character within the story who behaves a lot like an author who's arranging things. You know, uh, in, in Night Train, we'll be honest with it, the, the victim, it turns out, has constructed the entire plot through which the policewoman moves. In Money, the protagonist, John Self, who seems to be acting in the world, who seems to have agency and power, turns out the entire thing has been constructed around him, you know, without his knowledge by a plot against him. And a plotter who cross-dresses, yes. interestingly. <laughs> Plotting is a big thing in Amos, and all of his characters are victims of his plots. Um, and you get this in Dead Babies straight away. I'm interested in it because, as I say, it, it seems to me to be almost the last Amos before he gets really interested in big big subjects. 
And as much as it's a sort of spoof Agatha Christie thing, it's got that country house mystery thing going on because it's a collection of really horrible characters in this, you know, long weekend at Appleseed Rectory, doing which they, you know, there's a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of just nasty stuff going on. But there is a mysterious Johnny who is leaving notes around and causing havoc and introducing notes of menace. So there is a kind of mystery that goes through this story. So, yeah, who is Johnny? What does he want? What she want? What are they what are they actually trying to achieve? But it also reminds me, rereading it, of nothing so much as a kind of really toxic version of With None and I. That's what I thought. But it's got none it's it, it's got got none of the sort of so I think With None and I has a a sort of elegiac poignancy. There's a sourness in dead babies that isn't quite present in Withdale and I, you know, um, the laughs are that much darker. And also weirdly, and I don't know whether this is conscious, there's a bit when they go on an excursion to the city, about half a third of the way, halfway through, where the characters all sort of jump in their cars, loaded on drugs and everything else, and go out for an, for an evening's entertainment in town, which has a sort of very slight Great Gatsby trip to the city vibe about it as well. Um, I don't know how conscious that was, but but that sense of these kind of like crazed characters descending on on the town carelessly and you know under the miniature eye of TJ Eckelberg. Um I think there's a, there's a bit of that in there as well. Jin comes into Dead Babies a lot because I think in many ways one of the big protagonists, there are many, you couldn't really necessarily call any one of the characters the main character. As you say, Martin Amos is very much the puppet master, but uh, Giles Coldstream, interesting character for a number of reasons, uh, not least of all his penchant for large quantities of gin to ease his neuroses. But Giles Coldstream is obsessed with dentistry. Yes. Feels very, very confessional from Amos. Well, I, I mean, the thing is, he became neurotic on the subject for quite good reason. And there was that great stashy in the late 90s when when he left his agent, Pat Kavanagh, who was his friend Julian Barnes's wife, and ran off with Andrew the Jackal Wiley and secured a half a million pound advance for the information, which made huge headlines everywhere. And he was much denounced for his greed and he fell out with Barnes very badly. And at the time, at least as he explained it in experience, you know, a lot of that money went on having the most grotesque and painful root canal work. Now, I don't know whether Amos's teeth were bad when he wrote Dead Babies and whether he was as neurotic about them as Giles Coldstream. You know, whether the, the book opens with Giles having a terrifying dream in which his teeth are all falling out and it becomes apparent all the way through that, that this whole series of running jokes about Giles's obsession with dentistry and the kind of collection of dental objects he keeps around his his room and his mother's horrible teeth, which obviously kind of, you know, I, I wonder whether we're retrofitting the tooth obsession, um, but certainly he 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 came to, to feel very strongly about his teeth. But yeah, so there's Giles, who's one sort of avatar of a particular kind of, I think, degraded poshness. I mean, it's it certainly, I, I say Amos isn't interested in big subjects. He's interested in that sort of collapsing mid-century social order which the 60s and 70s were finally knifing which with now of course you know famously you know, they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths man the bullying's gone up and that's the same kind of thing that I mean the, with now was the, the end of that period of change and this is sort of I think in the thick of it it's transatlantic there are these sort of Americans trio of Americans who, who come into the, the story but there's also this sort of impossibly beautiful Male. I mean, he's he, Quentin, who's who's not 
he's not a toff, I think, in the same way Giles Colstrom is, but he's a sort of Sebastian Flight affected aristocrat and a networker and a chancer and a sort of self inventor. He's the sort of slightly Gatsbyish figure. And then there's Keith, who is, you know, the court dwarf, really. And Keith is, you know, has none of these advantages of this sort of neurotically dying era of of, of money and and breeding and country houses. And then, you know, the, there are the women who sort of Diana and Celia. Celia is married to Quentin. Diana is in a relationship with Andy Adorno. Um, Andy, the other man, is this sort of terrifying thug. And then there's, you know, Diana, who's who's a sort of international, rather kind of waif-like character, and Celia, who's, you know, a, a, is another toff in a sense. Yes, as you say, Charles has his obsession with teeth and gin, and Keith Whitehead is fat, ugly, short. So you've got Quentin Villiers, handsome, winsome. He's the editor of Yes magazine, uh, a literary magazine. Yeah, Andy Adorno, who comes with all kinds of violence and misogyny. Diana Parry, the only one who sort of feels uneasy with the madness around her. She sort of feels out of place in and among it. Well, there's also Lucy. There's a, um, I mean, she she literally says at one point, I've got a heart, heart of gold. She's a tart with a heart of gold, who also is sort of a sort of more bruised character. I mean, actually, you know, for those who say Amos is a misogynist, in as much as there are any sympathetic characters in this book, they're the women. And importantly, all of the characters use drugs to regulate and mitigate and and sometimes, you know, neutralise their own worst thoughts, impulses, things that they were most scared of, of letting the world see. Perhaps with that, we should look to the first of the three extracts from the book that you've chosen to oh, read. Yeah. Well, actually, you mentioned the the drugs thing. Um, one of the things I'd want to say, just very, sort of introducing this, is that whatever, however we kind of land on the success of the book, which I think it's a, it's a, at best a mixed success. I mean, it does what it does to a kind of brain-pummeling extent. It has this quality. I don't know whether he was talking about this book when in later life, he Amos described reading some of his own earlier work. And he said, you know, it had these defects and these defects, but even then the prose was horribly alive. And I think in this book, you know, the prose is already horribly alive. Um, you know, he's still always finding out what to do with it. He has a, a decent sense, both it's sort of virtuosic and, and miasmic way in which the book's written. No one was thinking about it. No one was thinking much about anything when the room suddenly became a miasma of hangovers. Alcohol crapulence clogs perception, but drug crapulence flays it, and by now the kitchen was a noisome feast for peeled senses. The room appeared to change its shape. Voices scattered into piano mumbles. The cigarette smoke formed a shelf at shoulder height, above which sunbright faces wafted like mad masks. They plugged in kettles, hawked, ran water, wretched. The Americans swung open the fridge, picked with dirty fingernails at a staling loaf, scratched, burped, farted, snorted into the dregs of yesterday's liquor bottles. This butters off like chick. Just sugar's safest. My eyes, my eyes, eggs, the fuck? Gangway, I'm going to be sick. Water, fight the dehydration. Stop breathing like that. Gag, gag, gag. I'm flushing, I'm flushing. What's, the sizes are all wrong. Strange heat. Strange heat. Don't be there. Just don't be there. Then came the lagging time. It came abruptly, flopped down like an immense and invisible jelly from the ceiling, swamping the air with marine languor and insect speeds. Lagging time, with its numbness and disjunction, its inertia and automatism, its lost past and dead future. It was as if they were wandering through an endless, swarming, rotten, terminal marketplace 
after a year of unsleeping nights. Now they were all moving to no effect, just moving, just switching things off and switching things on, just picking things up and putting things down and picking things up and stroking the cat and counting the mugs and fighting for air. It seemed that everything they did had already been done and done, and that everything they thought had already been thought and thought, and that this would never end. Excuse me, said Panic to each of them in turn. They had no mouth, and they had to scream. So it's hallucinatory. This is about a group of people entering the arena of the unwell. And so you're reading this now, having read it as your first Amos novel back when you were a teenager, and you mentioned to me how perception of the book has changed quite a lot. How has it changed? Well, I remembered it being just wildly funny. And I think I was probably, as a teenager, very excited by the you know sheer quantity of sex and drugs and the, the kind of comic violence. Rereading it now... There's a lot of sort of racial language in it that is not what we'd use today. I mean, you can argue about whether that belongs to the author, whether that belongs to the character, because it's a book in which, you know, which really is just exploring how horrible people can be. And, you know, I think that that there is certainly a way in which it, it takes absolutely no prisoners. It's not concerned to be nice in any way whatsoever. But the racial language, the sort of misogyny of the characters, but it's... It, kind of bleeds through the book is really quite shocking um and sexual violence in it i mean again sexual violence with comic effect i mean keith is grotesquely sexually assaulted by the two um american men at the end of the book lucy at the beginning of the book is essentially kind of raped and passed around by andy adorno it's 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 yeah we trigger warning on every single page um and I think, you know, a lot of that hasn't dated well and is it feels even sourer probably than it was intended to be. Do you sense that Martin Amos, in trying to pass comment on these themes, tried too hard? Yeah, I think he was over-revving. I think that's, you know, very much what we had was the extraordinarily powerful engine of his prose and the extraordinarily powerful engine of his disgust. As I said, turning everything up to 11. I think the sort of control sort of structural counterpointing that he was able to do in his later novels the you know the the subtler stuff was yet to come um subtler and more serious as you say subtler I mean. and more serious but i think one of the things that's that struck me really in this book about sex and drugs is how much of it is about sex and drugs being sort of weirdly a wireistic experience it's all it, it's as I say, the, 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 this extraordinarily abusive treatment of Lucy earlier on uh, uh, in the book, when it, we, we detail the backstory of her relationship with Andy, is it's it's all about him ex- exercising his power over her by giving her to other other men. And there's a sort of strange thing in the first half of the book where before the Americans show up, who come with this sort of Timothy Leary character in tow who's titillating all these perfect drugs and insisting everyone takes them, Andy and Quentin basically make Keith take the drugs for them. They're interested in experimenting on him. Yes. They're not like, we want to get high. They're like, push all these Dexies and Benzos down the dwarf's neck and let's watch what it does to him. But yes, it's a novel in which so many of these experiences, which are supposed to be nice, are curdled into nastiness and are sort of pushed off onto others. Everyone's sort of trying to escape from themselves and even the sex and drugs is something that that other people are doing um, or are, are are somehow kind of mediated through the relationships with other people. It's a really queasy, queasy world. 
something he, he's trying to see how far he can go um and you know maybe he's saying to kingsley look i was about to bring him up and i don't know why i think he comes he will come up in every episode the father is always looming but um i do wonder what kingsley would have made of this yeah i, th- I think kingsley would have found it uh, found it unreadable probably and maybe maybe it was this book that caused kingsley to make these slighting public comments about his son's work but i think the relationship with kingsley is fascinating I and mean, you talked to matt dancona about experience you'll probably have touched on the the real tenderness in their relationship though that's a thing that's easily ignored in those who say well he was burdened by his sense that as he put it he was the only hereditary novelist in the canon burdened by kingsley's disobliging public comments the effect that you know if only martin would write a more sentences of the type he finished his drink and left the room and his <laughs> kingsley's famous line of when Mar- martin spent a year in France as a tax exile. He said, the little shit, the little shit. Because <laughs> Martin at the time was more successful than Kingsley. All that kind of public needle, I think in some sense, was was obviously founded on real private affection and admiration. And Martin just loved his father, I think. And that comes through so tenderly and well in experience. I mean, he said, he, he said, well, Kingsley wasn't an alcoholic, which I think, no, I think he was really. We've talked a lot about the character Keith Whitehead, and um, you've got a, a, another extract here that you'd like to read that deals with that character specifically. Well, yeah, there's the. I mean, in this passage is a is a phrase that that has remained with me for about thirty five years. So, I think that's probably um, re- reason enough to see it as worth having. In the fifth and final bedroom, actually a fetid nine by nine box situated between the garage and the boiler cupboard, Keith Whitehead lay on sandpaper blankets farting like a wizard. Let's go. Whitehead is an almost preposterously unattractive young man, practically, for instance, a dwarf. Whenever people want to say something nice about his appearance, they usually come up with, you've got quite nice colouring, a reference to his dark eyebrows and thin yellow hair. That granted, nothing remained to be praised about his unappetising person. The sparse straw mat atop a squashed and petulant mask of acme, the dour, bulgy little torso and repulsively truncated limbs, the numb, cadaverous texture of the whole. The more clothes you took off him, the more traumatic the spectacle became. His equally fat but better proportioned sister went into hysterics when she once surprised him in the bath. As he entered the Wimbledon Municipal Swimming Pool, two teenage girls spontaneously vomited into the shallow end. On being questioned, they said it was the quiffs on the nipples of Keith's D-cut breasts that had done the trick. Whitehead would subsequently ban from the baths. At school physical checkups. Doctors habitually refused to lay a finger on him, and the PT master threatened to hand in his notice should Keith ever set foot in the gymnasium again. As if in reply to these bodily shortcomings, Keith's nature is one utterly lacking in wit, generosity and charm. Whitehead is, moreover, keenly appreciative of this state of affairs, well aware that by almost anyone's standards, he would be better off dead. So you were allowed to do body shaming in the 70s. I was going to say, so much for body positivity then. Um, there was a phrase you said in that passage that has stayed with you for 30... Uh, the quiffed nipples and the, the vomit in the shallow end. I, I, I just, ah, you know, once once seen, never can be unseen. So, it's a, you know, it's a token, I think, of the kind of horrible power of Amos's grotesque comic imagination. And that, you know, it was there from the beginning. And all sorts of other things entered his writing to advantage. But that sort of engine of his work, the grotesquerie, the sort of physical disgust is really powerful all the way through his work. Yeah. And it is something that comes back in his writing time and time again, this sort of body horror 
uh, yeah. that appears so vividly in Dead Babies. The way that he writes about Keith Whitehead, I should say, is, is something that I recognized comes up uh, again in Money. This is the, the beginning of John Self. He says here, Keith would come home from school, a crimson-faced four-foot box in his sixth-form blazer, refuse a chocolate bar, snap at his father, then change into his white overalls. He hated changing into these, because they made him look appreciably more horrible than his school clothes did. In hostile silence, he and his father would serve the remaining children from the adjacent primary school. There would be more of them than usual because of the many Wild Stock's last bargains featured in the closing down sale. At 5.15 or so, Frank's knuckleless fingers were curling round a Mars bar or a Turkish delight. Keith would wait a few seconds, then remove a few peppermint creams from the high glass case. With slightly more hurried movements, Frank might reach for a sachet of poppets and whitehead a box of Maltesers. Now Frank whips his thumbnail round a carton of Savoy truffles and upends it into his mouth. Keith's head fizzes with imploding sherbet lemons. Bubbles of Carmack pop on Mr. Whitehead's lip. His son is lockjawed with fudge and Newbury fruits. Frank skillfully flips a tray of violet creams onto the counter and laps them up like a dog. A runaway train of Toblerone shunts down the tunnel of little Keith's throat. By 6.30 they are engaged in a lurching slow-motion alligator race to the downstairs lavatory vomitorium. By 7, their batter-moist mouths gape beneath the fish shop chip shoots. It's appetite. And he lays it on so thick, but as you say, yes, it, the, the prose is teemingly alive. But whatever it is that you think of it now, you can't deny, and you can never deny with Amos, the prose. Yes, and I think that, that thing about the, the, the appetite, the kind of desperate need to consume, which he identified you know, as a as a political thing in in money and London fields, but also as a, as a sort of existential thing. And there's another bit that sticks with me from experience where he describes Kingsley, I mean, as well as always drinking what he calls his vandal strength lager, which is Carlsberg special brick. That Kingsley's eating sweeties all the time in later life. That's right. And his he brandy describes how he's is, got yeah. how Kingsley's there. And he describes how he stuffed his mouth with sweets, so, so it's a, his head's the size of a basketball. Um, and he says, Kingsley, what? what are you doing? Why are you eating this stuff? And King, Kingsley says words to the effect, well, still pushing great fistfuls of you know, jelly babies into his, his mouth. You know, It makes me feel less sad, or it makes me feel less alone, or it makes me feel less frightened. I can't remember yeah. the, the line. but The, it's, the line, of, as I remember it, was, it seems to calm me down. That's it. It seems to calm me down. Um and I think, you know, I, it's just interests me that that he's observed, you know, Kingsley's night terrors, Kingsley's very childish terrors in his father, and this absolutely insatiable appetite for just stuff to somehow calm it down. And I think that that's what goes through this book in some way. When you met Amos, you said you you got through the interview quite well, but you didn't say how things went afterwards when you came off stage. How did you part ways? What do you remember of the sort of the the debrief, so to speak. I don't remember much of a debrief. I do remember I chaired him on a subsequent occasion. We were being very excited. Well, we went out for a fag and he rolled me a roly. I, I felt like I should actually really have kept that button, you know. <laughs> what were you smoking at the time? What was he using to roll up? Was it uh, Golden Virginia? Was it? I think it was Golden Virginia, but I can't remember. Um, was he good at it? Did he roll a good he cigarette? Rolled a, he rolled a good one skin cigarette, yeah. Um, and he was sort of friendly and chatty, as I say. He was, he was, you know, not not the the scary figure you might have seen him in if you if you'd only read about him. Um, and I remember asking because that was there, there was something in the novel which we talk about body horror. There's one of the novels, um, House of Meetings. That was it. 
And there's a thing in House of Meetings, again, body horror, again, appetite. One of the protagonists goes through the world and he's always got these enormous hands. He talks about how he's got these huge hands and these huge hands are constantly dispensing. He overtips constantly. He's always, I mean, he really is open-handed. Um, and he's sort of shoving great wads of notes into the hands of bellboys and train porters and so forth. And I asked him about that. He was just, oh, I don't know where that came from. You know, he acknowledged it. He noticed that there was this funny physical quirk. But I think, I think obviously, you know, he allowed some of these things to come straight out from his subconscious. But something I would say that, again, that I think he he's, was always, and as I say, with quite good reason, given the hard ride he got for all sorts of extra literary reasons that, you know, anything disobliging came out about him, anyone wanted to have a pop at him, it would be front page news. Um, and any attempts he made, he made to defend himself always seemed to make things worse. You know, he was always sort of in slight, you know, what I've sometimes called the combat stance. And I remember witnessing this once we were at the Hay Festival in Cartagena together, this some years later, I, can't, I mean, maybe 10, 10 years ago, or something like that. And Ronan Bennett was there as well. And Ronan had, when the row about Amos's kind of response to the Twin Towers attacks came out, he made a famous, famous intervention where he said, you know, essentially, I think, you know, don't you feel the impulse to say that Muslims need to get their house in order, that they must be punished until they, you know, that, that um, and Rona was one of those who came out and said, I think this is racist. Me, I think there's a, there's another reading of that, which is that what Amos was doing was describing an impulse and an unattractive one that he saw in himself. But that's, I mean, maybe that's an argument for another day, but that had hurt him. And at this thing, Ronan said, he went up to him at one point, said, look, we've had our differences. Can we bury the hatchet? And put his hand out, shake it, and Amos just turned on his heel and went and refused to shake his hand. And I think he did have, when he felt he was unfairly treated, when he felt under attack, he wasn't he wasn't always going to sit back and take it. So, you know, the generous cuddly side of him, well, the generous side of him was there, and the kindness was there. But I think he wasn't, you know, he wasn't he wasn't a complete patsy. He wasn't always cuddly and you know there are instances I think when Camilla Long said something to him when she was interviewing him like oh, so this is novel return to form you know he bridled he said well, I think my my talent's perfectly vigorous you know what is this return to form shit you know he was he was quite as much as he mocked himself and he mocked male egotism you know he was he was one of those writers who didn't see much point in doing what he was doing unless he could be number one and he he has that self-mocking, but also, I think, slightly truthful line about how, you know, all every, any novelist ever wants from a review is 2,000 words of closely argued praise. And closely argues brilliant. <laughs> Posthumously, it's natural to want to gather all of these memories and anecdotes, all this data, and say that this was who the person was. But I suppose it could have come down to who he was on a particular day, what he'd been through that morning. But again, Christopher Hitchens came to his defence back in the early 2000s, where he said, the UK and London especially turns into a nasty little village of whisper networks and, and gossips and curtain twitchers. And he says, I defend my friend Martin partly because I can see it myself, just how mean-spirited the community can be. So I think having his guard up was just you know, recognising. And he did live a lot of his later life in America. Yeah, he went, well, I, I saw him after he came back from Uruguay. And he said it was lovely because my health of things, he was copying all that shit. And, you know, I think when he went to Brooklyn, he was 
you know, he didn't feel like he was in this quite parochial, as he saw, quite philistine, quite malevolent sort of tabloid goldfish bowl. You know, sometimes he fell into an elephant trap. I felt, for instance, like his immediate response to 9-11, and it, it seemed to me to absolutely point up one of the weaknesses of Amos, which is that he was so much a writer and so much a sort of writerly writer that he would tend to get in front of events with his prose rather than serving them. You've got the sense that, you know, he had that, he started talking about horrorism as a development of terrorism. And he said that, you know, when he watched 9-11, as, you know, we all did like on the telly, he saw the world flash of a coming future, which apart from being a sort of inept piece of phrase making, was sort of a showy piece of phrase making. There was that sense that he could never quite resist, which I think was one of the the criticisms I would make of his his work in general, though not not a systematic one, is that because he was so interested in these big subjects, there was always a suspicion that he adopted a big subject because it was sort of embiggen him as a writer, that it made him a more important writer to take on a more important subject. And if he was just writing a Hampstead adultery novel, he wasn't really in contention. You know, obviously the people he looked to generally as writers, I mean, as a stylist, as sort of Nabokov and, but, you know, Bellow, the great American novelist, big Americans. And the, the quest for the great American novel was something that he imported to the UK, which gave his work a tremendous ambition, but also sometimes gave it that sense that, you know, the world was an occasion for the prose rather than the prose in service of the world. Sam, it's been an absolute joy to sit here with you and talk about Martin Amis as well as Dead Babies. You're currently writing a book about children's literature, the history of, and Martin Amis famously said in answer to the question, would you ever consider writing a child's book? Yes, maybe if I incurred brain damage. What do you think of that comment? I think he's wrong that, you know, I mean, I, obviously I wouldn't bother to write a history of children's literature. I thought it was something only produced by the brain damaged. Um, I mean, I think children's literature is very important because, you know, Anyone who gets to Nabokov or Martin Amos gets there well, through Janet and John. Um, so it's it's the foundation on which everything else is built. Um, I'm surprised he said that. I think that was a sort of flip remark. But I, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't what he was interested in. I think he was interested in in speaking to adults, though. You know, you could say Dead Babies is possibly his most childish book. It is. Uh, I suppose on that, we should probably end on one last reading. Inside Appleseed Rectory, the first light came on. From their various corners, they were all moving quietly and purposefully towards the main room. With the passing of day and the advent of evening, their sicknesses and anxieties seemed to be momentarily neutralised, lent off into the changing air. Soon, the windows would be dark and there would be nothing but Appleseed Rectory and themselves. The central nervous system is a coded time scale, began Marvell, and each overlap of neurons and each spinal latitude marks a unit in neuronic time. The further down the CNS you go, through the hindbrain, the medulla, into the spinal tract, gene activity increases and concentrates, and you descend into the neuronic gallery of your own past, like your whole metabiologic personality going by in stills. As the drug enters the amniotic corridor, it will start to urge you back through spinal and archaeopsychic time, reactivating in your mind screen the changing landscapes of your subconscious past, each reflecting its own distinct emotional terrain. The releasing mechanisms in your cytoplasm will be awakened, say Martin says at the beginning, I don't know much about science, but I know what I like, and you will phase into the entirely new zone of the neuronic psyche. This is the real you. This is total biopsychic recall. 
This is the lumber transfer. Come over here one at a time, please. Yes, it was seven o'clock, and a pall of thunder hung over the rectory rose gardens. The formerly active air was now so weighed down that it seeped like heavy water over the roof. Darkness flowed in the distance, and the dusk raked like a black searchlight across the hills towards them. But pity the dead babies. Now, before it starts. They couldn't know what was behind them, nor what was to come. The past? They had none. Like children, after a long day's journey, their lives arranged themselves in a patchwork of vanished mornings, lost afternoons, and probable yesterdays. Marvellous. What a passage to end on. Sam Leith, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 